Okay, 2 Samuel 7, we're looking at the life of David. I could say this every week, but I don't, um, and I really mean it when I say it this week. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It really is. Um, it's one of those chapters that so shapes the story of the Bible. It's not a chapter that has all this application for our life directly, even though it has massive uh, application, because the story itself is the thing that gives us hope, that changes us, and uh, um, yeah. So, Second Samuel 7, if you have a Bible like mine, this is found in 245. Yes, out of respect, but also with a sense of excitement. If you can stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to the prophet, Nathan, here I am. I live in this house, this palace, while the ark of God, that box, remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, well, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to the prophet, saying, Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build for me a house to dwell? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not yet built a house Of cedar, why have you not given me a palace? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you, David, from the pasture, from tending the flock. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off your enemies from before you. And now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. But the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest rest with your ancestors, I will raise up a seed, a descendant to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Yes, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed before you. Your house, your kingdom, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And I I don't have time really to to, to get into David's response, but I'm just going to quickly just read some of it. Then David went in. Went into where? He went right into the holy place of God, into the tabernacle, 
Because it's technical language here. It says, and he sat before the Lord. As he sat in that holy place, he says, who am I, sovereign Lord? Who am I? And in verse 22, he says, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There's none like you. There's no God but you, as you have heard with your own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever. Uh, You, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise that you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised. This is God's word. You can be seated. So David uh, builds his palace and now is like, God needs a palace. Now I want to start with this question. Why is this important to David? And the answer to me is, is very simple. David knows the story. David is someone who, who knows God. David is, is, is that king who every day is commanded to, to read the text, to know the text, so as king, he can abide by the text. And so David is someone who knows God's intent, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. David knows that God has a special plan for Israel, and it's not just to save them and take them to heaven, but that Israel would be God's special people to bring heaven to earth. They were God's bride, God's partner to bring shalom to chaos. And what David also knows is that God has given Israel this little piece of real estate in the center of the world, right on on, on the world's main street. Just like God gave Adam and Eve a little piece of real estate called Eden. Israel is the new Eden. And I want you to think for a minute just about the significance of Eden. Because we're in the cosmic uh, plane of the story of God right now. So many of us just think of Eden as this paradise. But the Bible says nothing about Eden being a paradise. The Bible says that Eden is the place where Adam and Eve are called to king God's kingdom into the whole world. It's the place from where they are to rule and and to subdue the whole earth to bring God's glory and God's presence and God's shalom to bear on all creation. That's Eden. And see, David knows that the only reason why Adam and Eve could ever be up for such a task as that, to king God's kingdom into the whole universe, is because of that special garden that God puts in Eden. Because this garden, in one sense, is is Adam and Eve's home. It's, It's their palace, but in a greater sense... This little garden in Eden is is God's palace. This is where God lives. The tree of life is there. And that tree represents the world's power source. This is where heaven and earth are plugged into each other. This is where Adam and Eve are intimately and 
personally connected to the living God. Uh, the garden is, is the place where the life of God, the electricity of God, goes out and brings life to all creation. Now, as, as theologians, all theologians, both Jewish and Christian, agree that there's, there's one verse that most defines a day in, in the life of this garden, and it's Genesis 3, verse 8. And I just want to uh, show you this verse on PowerPoint. I think I gave it to them. If I didn't, um, uh, no, it's not that one. That's all right. Uh, I'll, I'll just uh, tell you what the verse is. It's Adam and Eve heard God's sound as God walked in the cool of the day. That verse defines the garden. Adam and Eve heard the sound. The word for sound there in Hebrew is the word kol. Kol means voice. The garden is the place where Adam and Eve heard the voice of God. The second thing it says, as, as, as God walked, um, the word for walk there is a very unique Hebrew word for walk. It doesn't mean just to walk but it means to walk in the middle of. And so the idea is, is that God is not just walking in this garden, but he's walking in the middle of Adam and Eve, almost as if he's arm in arm with them. Adam on this side, Eve on this side, walking, talking with him. In the cool of the day. In that hot part of the world, it's, it's that time of the day uh, when that hot sun begins to lose its power and the, the breezes begin to pick up. This word cool, though, is, is the word ruach. In, in the ruach of the day. That word for spirit and wind. And you guys know my, my theology that whenever God is personified uh, in, in such a way where, where we see God walking, it, it's Christ. The garden is the place where Adam and Eve, they walk with Christ. And they're just overwhelmed with the Spirit of God. And whether you know this or not today, we have all been made for this garden. We've all been made to know God and to walk with God in the cool of the day. Where God has his arms around us and we have our arms around him. And where we just walk and talk with him. Do you have that? Does that describe what's most important in your life? Well, this is all the context. Because the tragedy then of the garden, as we all know, is that Adam and Eve decided that they could actually do life without God, that they didn't need to walk with God, they didn't need to talk with God, because really, at the end of the day, they just wanted to do things their way. And we know the tragedy of that. God kicked them out of the garden. And they lost the tree, the, the world's power source. And the lights go out, and the world falls back into darkness, into ruin, into chaos. But it's into this wreckage that God makes a stunning promise. He says, Eve, from you is going to come a descendant, a son, who's going to crush the head of evil once, once and for all and make everything right again. And see, this is what our Bibles are about. 
Our Bibles are about a God who didn't give up on the world, but a God who so loves the world. And he's made promises, not politician promises. <laughs> he's made promises that are real and substantial to rescue the world, to redeem the world, to restore the world, to resurrect it. To make it all right again. That he someday is going to raise up a new Adam and Eve. He's going to raise up a new humanity who are once again going to be placed into a new Eden where there is yet again another garden where God lives, where God's going to walk and talk with his people in the cool of the day and through this new humanity who are connected with God and plugged into the power source that God's power and God's glory are going to be unleashed into all creation bringing its full healing. That's the story of the Bible. That's why I can get up in the morning. So now when we get to this part of the story in 2 Samuel 7, I just want you to put yourself in a common Israelite's shoes. They're, they're probably looking at everything that, that's going on and they're probably saying, it's happening. God has rescued a people for himself, Israel. He's recreated them as a special people. He's placed them in this special place, this new Eden. And from them has come this king, this one, this descendant, this son. Who actually crushed the head of Mr. 666 himself. In fact, Psalm 2, God has placed his king on his holy hill, Zion. The nations are now becoming the inheritance of this king. Yet in all of this, David notices that one massive thing is missing. What is it? The centerpiece. The power source. And so last week, if you were here, uh, we looked at 2 Samuel 6, where, where David retrieves the box. I mean, we call it an ark, but if you really want to know what it is, it's just, it's just a box about this big, this tall, and, and, and about this wide. Because when God's people, uh, hundreds of years before this, are in the desert, he says to Israel, Israel, as you live in your tents, um, I want a tent that's right in the center of your tents because this is God's heart. God wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell in the center of them. He wants to walk arm in arm with them in the cool of the day. But God has a problem, and I want us to understand what God's problem is. He's holy, and they're sinful. And the question is, how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people and not destroy them? And I wish that that thought, that question, would still stop us dead in our tracks. That we'd be so consumed with the holiness of God that he wouldn't be just reduced to my little buddy in my back pocket. That we would wonder, how can this awesome, holy God be with us, dwell with us, walk arm in arm with us in the cool of the day? 
And see, the first picture that God gives to Moses is that burning bush. And, and, and it's this fire that's, that's raging, but the bush isn't being consumed. And see, that's the picture that God is given to Moses. Moses, this is who I am, and this is what I promise to be. I promise to be as this consuming fire. I'm going to dwell with you and your people without destroying them or consuming them. Because the big question in this whole picture is not, why is this bush not being consumed? The bigger question is, why isn't Moses being consumed? That's because of the one who's in the bush. And so this becomes God's promise. And when, when God then pitches his tent in the center of Israel's tent in the desert, he has to give them very specific instructions about his living space. Specific instructions that, that include how they're to approach them. Because who may ascend the, the tent of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Because to draw near to the living God is an awesome thing. And one absolutely needs a covering. We, we, we all need to be covered. We don't get to just prance into the presence of God, a holy God, without a covering. And this is the function of the priest. And this is the function of a sacrifice, which really only point us really, though, to the priest and to the ultimate sacrifice. We still need covering Thanks be to Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and our great sacrifice. As Hebrews says, we can just come right in. And in God's instructions, he says, okay, this is what I want. He says, build, build a tent. Again, a tent that's, that's, that's smaller than this section right here. He says, build a tent. And he says, then I want you uh, to build a box that's made of acacia wood. And I think I might have a PowerPoint of that one or not. Well, I already described it. It's about this wide. It's about this tall. And then the dimensions are about this wide. Okay? So a box like that. <laughs> we'll get it next service, hopefully. Um, and God says, this is what I want. I want you to cover both the outside and the inside with gold. And I like what the rabbis say. They say, yeah, this is, because then also not only do I want it to be covered with gold, but then what I want you to put inside the box is Torah. And so the rabbis actually say, this is, this is what we are when we fill our life with, with Torah. Both the outside and the, and the inside of our lives are like gold, but yet the middle is still just wood. And then God says, on, on the top of this box, which we call the mercy seat, he says, I want you to put two cherubim. And God says, if you want to know where my raw, glorious presence is, it's in the back of the tent where this box is, right on top of it, between these two cherubim. This tent in Hebrew is called Mishkan. Let me just, I do have a PowerPoint slide on this. I want to show you two Hebrew words here that kind of um, also 
convey some of this. Mishkan, meh is place of, shkan is dwelling. So Mishkan, this tent, that's what it's called. It's the place of dwelling. It's also where we get the word Shekinah or Shekinah, which is God's awesome, raw presence. Yes, God is everywhere, but his manifest presence, God says, will be in that back room, in that tent, on top of that box between the two cherubim. And you have texts like Leviticus 29, where God says, Exodus 29, Then I will dwell among the Israelites, and I will be their God that they will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt. That word know there is the, is, is the Hebrew word yada. It's not just know about, but it's this intimate, personal knowledge of God. Because God is in our midst. Leviticus 26 says, I will put my dwelling place among you. And I will not reject you. In fact, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. That walk among you, when you build me a dwelling place, that walk among you is the same Genesis 3 unique word for walk. You build this, this, this place for me and we're going to walk again arm in arm together. Intimately. Personally. Where you yada me, you know me. Can't help but wonder what Moses was thinking when God's giving him, him these instructions. Okay, God, you're, you're telling me. I mean, God, you're the one who spoke the world into existence. You, you, you fashioned and, and put the galaxies where there are. Every star, God, you know by name. And yet, God, you're telling me your presence is going to be contained in this small little space in the back of a tent on the top of a box. And I just see God saying, yeah, I love you, Moses. And I love my people and I want to be close to them. I want to be with them. And I love this this, this image of, of, of... all the people in the desert in their tents with God's tent right in the middle of them. So that the little kids that night can go to sleep and not be, a, be afraid of the dark or snakes or scorpions or ISIS because God is with us and his tent is right in the middle of us. Now, when God's people entered the promised land, that, that, that pillar of cloud that led them now leaves them. Instead, it's this box that's carried by the priest that leads them into the land. But a strange thing happens with, with, with this box. Over time, the box is just kind of reduced to a good luck charm that they take into battle, hoping that if we bring the box that that, that will defeat our enemies. In fact, sometimes even the box is stolen by the enemies, but then God miraculously returns the box. And then over still more time, the box is almost forgotten. Like, no one cares about it. No one cares where it is. No one cares. Um, they, 
They don't know because they forgot. Is that us? We get so consumed with our lives, so consumed with with what we're to do, even good things. So consumed with our families, so consumed with our jobs, maybe even so consumed with church that we forgot about the box. That the very presence of God matters. That it's everything. That without his presence, it's all a waste. But see, God now has a king who has a passion for the living God, who has a passion for God's presence. And as we learned last week, he's like, where's the box? We need to get the box. And now he's saying, not only do we need to bring the tree of life back, but the tree of life needs its garden. We need to build a house for God. That's what's going on. And so God, so David goes to the prophet Nathan and says, this is what I want to do. I, I, I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, go for it because God is with you. But as quickly as he says that, God then comes to Nathan and says, Nathan, you just misspoke. I want you to go tell David, no. In fact, I love how God puts this. Look at verse 6. He says, Nathan, tell David, have I not ever dwelled in anything but a tent? And then verse 7, he says, have I ever asked for a palace, ever? A tent will do, Nathan. And I want us to see God's heart because we are to reflect God's heart. This is our God, the God who made it all, who spoke the whole world in, into existence, who owns it all, who's Lord of all. I don't need a palace. A simple tent will do. And this is the way it is. And, and, and we know as we go into the story that God eventually is going to say, yes, build me a house. But even this house that God uh, asked to be built, it's, it's, it's not some elaborate, magnificent building. It, it's rather still quite humble. Well, some of you then are, are, are saying, but what about this temple that, that you talk about during the time of Jesus that was the, the most beautiful building in, in the whole world at its time? Listen, Herod built that temple not to show off God, but to show off Herod. And, and the irony of that whole thing is that God isn't even living in that house anymore. And everybody knows it. Because the Shekinah glory of God now fills a young man from Nazareth. 
who says foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. God never wanted to show himself off through, through a palace or a beautiful temple or a cathedral. Listen, I, I, I just spent three days in Rome. Libby got so tired, we, we got up every morning and we walked the whole day. I covered every square inch of that city, I promise you. I, I went into every cathedral there is. At least 30 of them. That would blow your mind away. Stunning. Beautiful. And we saved the best for last, being what? St. Peter's. Literally, you, you, you walk into this and you're just like, oh. But what's St. Peter's? Poor Libby, she had to literally listen to me preach one of the loudest street sermons. Everybody's looking at me because I can't keep it in. It had to come out. <laughs> I know. Mm, sorry, Lib. It's to commemorate the burial place of popes. When God shows himself to the world, and this goes all the way back to the beginning, it's not going to be through bricks and mortar. It's not going to be through magnificent buildings or temples or cathedrals. He's going to do it through a people. Through people who, who bow to him and surrender their lives to him. Who love him with everything they have. And he's going to put his name on a people and say, be me to the world. Show me off. Show the world what my face looks like. Show the world what my heart is like. Show the world what my hands are like. Show the world my, my voice, my feet. It's us. Now, God pushes this even further with David. He says, David, not only are you not going to build me a house, but David, I'm going to build you a house. In fact, the house that God has in mind is not a bricks and, and mortar house. It's, it, it's instead, it's this dynasty. It's this eternal kingdom that's going to eventually repair the whole world. In fact, the promises that God makes to David here are, are, are stunningly awesome and they're not promises that are just for David, but they're promises that are for the whole world. Because these promises are on par with the promises that God made to Abraham, which were not just to Abraham, but promises to heal and restore the whole. And so that same fourfold promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12 um, and in other chapters after that, it's, it's the same consistent promise here. Uh, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Look at verse 9. God says, David, I'm going to make your name great. God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a specific land. Look at verse 10. David, I will give you and your people a place, a land where I will literally plant them. Abraham, I'll give you descendants, and, and, and your family is going to be great. 
And look at verse 12. David, not only am I going to give you descendants, but there's going to be a specific special descendant that I'm going to give to you, a son, through whom my kingdom will be established forever. Abraham, all the families of the world are going to be blessed through the promises that I'm making to you and to your family. They're going to be healed and they're going to be restored. Look at verse 13. David, your throne is forever. And see, now we're starting to to see how God is going to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham, this promise to heal and to restore all the families on the face of the earth, that it's going to be through a king, that everything now is going to rise and fall on God's king. Because before there was a king, it's all about Israel and Israel's faithfulness to God. But now it's all about the king and the king's faithfulness to God. Everything is riding on the king. And we kind of know this principle a little bit. As a leader goes, so go a people. As a coach goes, so goes a team. As a father goes, so goes a family. As a pastor goes, so goes a church. As a CEO goes, so goes a company. As a king goes, so goes Israel. And as Israel goes, so goes the world. David has just been made to be like a new Adam. Where it's all riding on him. That as Israel's representative, if he falls, Israel falls. And the whole thing falls. And so David, in a real sense, he's held responsible for the whole. It would be like right now as, as, as your leader of this church. If every failure in this room was my responsibility. Every affair was my responsibility. Every act of dishonesty was my responsibility. Every injustice, every abuse... It's my responsibility. Man, I wish we had leaders that started to think that way. And this is why verse 14, you, you read that and, and you just kind of like, whoa, God, that's harsh. Where God says, I, I'm going to be a father to him and he's going to be like, be a son to me, and when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. It's on the king now that God is going to unleash his punishment. And I want us to think about all God's promises at this point, how they all now run through the king. That God's promise to rescue and to redeem and to restore and to reconcile and to resurrect the whole world. They go right to the king. So here's the question at this part in the story. Does God have a righteous king? Does God really have a man after his own heart? Does he really have a new Adam? Someone who perfectly represents God. I know this. 
I long for this king. Our world longs for this king. A king that when we see him, not because he looks so beautiful, but because his life is so beautiful, he captures our hearts. Who causes us to burn with just respect and admiration. That when we come into the presence of this king, all we want to do is just, is just bow and get We long for this. Our election season right now shows how much we long for this. And maybe some of you are thinking, like, like God, why does it have to be this world this way? Because the world's never going to have a king that, that our hearts just, just, just bow and, and, and where we just lay our lives down with joy. Turn with me to Luke 1. Look at verse 31. Mary, you will conceive and you will give birth to a king, a son. And you will call him Jesus. And his name will be great. And he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign with David's people forever and ever and ever. And what Luke is telling us right out of the gates... God made a promise to David, and God is now keeping that promise in Jesus. Don't ever look at the Old Testament and think that God's first plan didn't work, so now God is is on to plan B, which is Jesus. Jesus has been God's plan from the very beginning. 1 Peter 1 verse 20 says, Christ was chosen before the foundations of the world. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his his being. That's why he came. He came to show us God, the face of the Father. John 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He pitched his mishkan. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And even more than this, Isaiah 53 said it about this king. He took our punishment. He bore our sin. He was beaten with rods by God himself. For our unfaithfulness. Our God is a promise-making God, and our God is a promise-keeping God. He keeps his promise. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that all God's promises are amen and yes in Jesus Christ. 
And we know the rest of the story. We know that this king is coming back. He's coming back, you guys. Amen. Thank you for just giving expression, just because I know we all can't wait. And when we see him, he will be so beautiful, but as beautiful as he is, People are going to try to find every cave or nook or hiding place to hide from him because he'll be awesome. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king. It's going to happen. In Revelation 21, 22, this is the end of the story. And I heard a loud voice from God's throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will live among them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their, their God. And listen to this. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death. Mark Sigmund, there'll be no more death. Or mourning, or crying, or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Because he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then the angel showed me the river of Maim Chaim, of living water, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of all the nations. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That's the house that God is building and will build. And it's not just a house for David, it's a house for all of us. And here's God's M.O., God, first of all, builds us a house, and then he asks us to build him a house. And here's my ending question. Have you, have we, built God a house? I think one of the most depressing chapters in the whole Bible is Revelation 3, where Jesus is writing a letter to Christians, to a church. And he says, church of Laodicea, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm on the outside. Open the door and let me in. Have you made space for God? Have we made space for God? We make space for almost everything under the sun. We make space for ourselves. We make space for our hobbies. We make space for our families. We make space for our pets. We make space for our sports, our school, our friends. We make space for our retirement. We make space for our screens. We make space for our our entertainment and our leisure. We carve out huge spaces for these things. But have we made space for God? First Corinthians 6 verse 16, Paul says, what agreement is there between 
the temple of God in idols, for we are the house of the living God. As God has said, I will walk with them, I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is the passion of God. He's the one to be on the outside knocking. He wants to take his place in the center of our lives, our world, our marriages, our families, our churches, our hearts. And how will the world know Eden if we aren't the Garden of Eden? Let's pray. God, I know you convicted me this week of how I can just push you to the periphery so quickly. And sometimes, God, it even goes past the periphery. But God, right now, I, I, I want to pray, first of all, for, for people in this room because I can't assume that every person in this room has invited you into their life. And so, God, if there's anyone in this room right now who's never made space for you, but they can just right now, through your Holy Spirit and through your word, they, they know that you are knocking, Christ, that you are knocking on the door of their life, that you are knocking on the door of their heart. And you're saying, Invite me in. And so God, if anyone is there this morning, God, I just pray that they would just pray this prayer right now from their heart. Jesus, you are my king. You are my Lord. And I give up being the Lord of my life. I give up control of my life. And I invite you in. Come in, Jesus. Be my Lord. Be my King. And God, for others of us this morning who call ourselves Christians, and we know you and we walk with you, and yet we, we confess, God, that you are far from us and you're not in the center, God. We, we passionately cry out to you, God. Come into the center of this church. God, come into the center of our families. Come into the center of our our marriages. God, come in the center of every heart and life that's in this room right now. Come. And God, I pray that we would make radical space for you. God, that you wouldn't just be forgotten and, and, and pushed outside, God, but that every day we'd, 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 we'd bring you into the center, the very center of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.